So I'm Matt. Lovely to see you all this morning. Um, quick question for you to think about. What, do you, what would you say is the condition of your heart at the moment? A lot of it's about hearts this morning. How's yours doing? I don't mean have you eaten burgers and so on recently. Just an interesting question to reflect on, isn't it? Where's my heart up to this morning? How am I doing? One of the things that... Um, in fact, let me pray for us before we begin. Father, we pray that you'd speak to us. We pray that, the, that your word would be clear to us. We pray, God, that you would encourage us, that you would build us up, that you would challenge us. We pray, God, that if we don't know you very much, Lord, that we would find you surprisingly near. And if we know you fairly well, Lord, we pray that we would just know that there is more of you to know this morning. Jesus, encourage us, we pray. Amen. One of our irritants at the moment has been uh, watching TV series where at the end of an episode, they then show you a summary of the next episode. Have you come across that? I don't understand it. It seems completely weird to me. I'm doing exactly that. We're reaching for the remote, fingers in the ears. Please don't tell us what's coming next. Otherwise, why would I watch it? What I do like, though, is when you are on the next episode a week later and you think, I don't remember last week, and they give you a little summary. So here is a little summary of Amy's sermon, which was brilliant last week. I really, really enjoyed it. Here is a brief summary of what she told us. We're starting to look at the book of Ezekiel. He was a refugee living in the land of Babylon, which is modern-day Iraq, if you're kind of trying to get a picture in your head of it. He and his family were captured by the Babylonians. And the kind of idea was, from the Babylonians, if they took some of the people away from the nation of Judah, if they captured perhaps some of those kind of leading figures, that maybe it would then be easier to rule the country themselves. So that was the kind of plan. You break the back of the government by taking some of the people out, and then that makes it easier to rule what's left behind. And so Ezekiel is one of that first wave that they take out and say, look, come off to Babylon, and then hopefully it'll be easier for us to rule the nation afterwards. God appears to Ezekiel while he's in Babylon and tells him that the exile, that being a refugee, is only the first step. But actually their nation might be completely destroyed if they don't sort themselves out. So that's kind of the overall message of Ezekiel. But there is hope, and we'll get onto that in just a minute. You might have noticed, if you were eagle-eyed, that we just read chapter 11, and that last week we read chapter 1. So you've got a few chapters in the middle. Let me just briefly tell you what happens in them. Here are some images, by the way, to help you on the way through to kind of keep track of where we've been. So chapter 4, he builds a mud sandcastle. Anyone ever built a mud castle? None of you? Few of you? I remember spending a, a day on uh, Cardiff Beach building mud castles. We got there thinking there would be sand and there wasn't. And so mud castles, who knew? It's quite a wonderful thing. But he builds a mud castle of Jerusalem, his hometown. He builds it in his refugee camp and then he squashes it as a sort of symbol of this is what God's going to do to you if you don't sort yourselves out. Then chapter 5, he cuts his hair off. And God says, throw it around the place as a symbol that your nation is going to be divided and split, that destruction's coming. But if you read chapter 5 carefully, you'll notice that there's a little bit of his hair that he's told, sew this into the corner of your coat as a symbol that God is going to be faithful to a small amount that's going to be the remnant, that's going to be the new hope, if you like. 
Why is destruction coming? Why is God threatening the nation? Why has Ezekiel got this horrible message? Well, it's because it's all gone wrong. The people have committed sins. They've left God out of it completely. And even their leaders have gone wrong, even the temple priests. Chapter 8, Ezekiel's taken in the vision to the temple, the one place where God would meet people. That's it down the left there, or at least what we think it would have looked like back when Ezekiel was alive. And so God takes him in this vision to the temple and they go into the sort of secret room and he sees the priests worshipping other gods in the middle of that space that was dedicated to God. Just to give you an idea about sort of an equivalent, imagine if you will that you went out for coffee at the end of this, it was all good, and I went out the back and started worshipping the sun. (laughs) Like that's the sort of equivalent. And you can imagine that hopefully you as a church wouldn't put up with it. You'd say, no, I don't think you're our vicar anymore. And I imagine that God wouldn't put up with it either. Why would he in this place that's meant to be dedicated to him? And so in chapter 10, God leaves his temple. His presence is gone. He is no longer with the people. But where is he? We know the answer to that because we heard it last week. Because in chapter 1, he's with the exiles. He's with the people who are hungry for him. He's with the people who love him. And I would say that's a constant message in the Bible, that God is there with the people who most desire him. I might have said this a fortnight ago, but um, one of the speakers that we had at New Wine, a big summer festival we went to uh, just during the summer, was saying, when you look at all the times God's moved powerfully, it's not because they're in a particular denomination, it's not because of their clothes, it's not because of anything else, it's because they want God. I think that's an interesting message for us. How much are we hungering after God? And so today we come to chapter 11, and this is the start of the kind of U-turn in the book. It's all gone wrong, and then God's saying, but it's not set in stone, it can be changed, and this is how the future can be different. So in chapter 11, we read that Pelatiah has died. Pelatiah's name means that the Lord delivers And Ezekiel takes this to mean, well, this must mean that that the nation's done. The Lord delivers into destruction. But what we learn is that actually there is hope. And perhaps the Lord delivers is going to mean something a little bit different. God points out to him that those who are not refugees have been mocking Ezekiel. Those who are left back in the homeland are saying, basically, we were the good ones. You were the duffers. That's why God's led you off into exile. We're okay, but you're not. And so God instead reminds Ezekiel that actually that's not true. That God is still with the exiles. He is with the remnant. They are like the hares. They are like the people who are kept safe. And so as God has always done, he promises to be faithful to those people who love him. Even as a refugee, Ezekiel is promised that God would be his sanctuary. When you hear that word, I wonder what you think, sanctuary If you're very well-to-do, you might be thinking of the beauty farm in London. Anyone heard of that? Apparently it's very swanky. If you're perhaps a bit of a historian, you might be thinking of back in the Middle Ages when people used to run to the church if they were being uh, captured or if someone was trying to kill them. And that would be their place of sanctuary, the place where no one was allowed to kill them. I don't know where your place of sanctuary is, that place when you feel safe and at peace and you feel that God is near you. 
Ezekiel, even as a refugee, even in a foreign land, even amongst other people who didn't love, Jesus, didn't love God, he felt like he was in that place of sanctuary. So therefore, what will the future look like? What would restoration look like? We see again and again in the Bible this theme that God scatters and then he gathers. That he sends people off into other nations in order to kind of reset them so that they would come back to him and say, God, we really need you. And then he would gather them back together again. Here are some of the examples and you might be thinking of some of these yourself. So in Isaiah, prophesying about Jesus, Isaiah writes, I will raise a banner for the nations and gather the exiles from the four corners of the earth. Jeremiah 23, writing at the same time as Ezekiel, says, I myself will gather the remnant, the leftover ones, the ones still remaining of my flock from the countries where they are, and they will be brought back to good pasture and will increase in number. Micah, looking forwards towards the end of the world, when Jesus comes back, says, I will assemble all the exiles. Our God is the one who gathers says, let me bring you back together again and bless you. But why would God want to do that? If you've read through the Old Testament particularly, it feels like a yo-yo. I don't know if you've noticed that. So the people are great. They follow God. They love him. And then they go wrong. And so they all go off again. And then they restore themselves. They kind of get better. And they come back to God. And then it's okay. And then they go wrong again. And it does this all the way through. Doing well. Leaving God, doing badly, need to be brought away, and then coming back again. So why would God bring the people back at all? Why would God make these promises to Ezekiel of gathering them back again, of reversing the exile, of giving them back their land? Surely it would go wrong again. And I think the answer to that is, this time something would be different. Three things that are going to happen one is their eyes will be open to the evil happening in their land before they may not have even noticed it. Sometimes we can be the same, that we've just got used to something. And then suddenly God says, wait a minute, that's not quite right. And our eyes are opened. That's what would happen to them. The second thing is they would sort out their temple. They would make sure that their priests, their religious leaders actually followed God and stop them from going wrong. And perhaps the most important thing, that God would take away their heart of stone and give them a new heart. Now, when we think about a heart, we're thinking about emotions and love and so on, aren't we? But back then, your heart was where your will was. So if I said to you, what is it that motivates you in your life? That's what's coming out of your heart. It's your desire. It's your orientation. It's what you are all about. And God says to them, I'm going to sort that out. It's like stone at the moment. I can't work with it. So I'm going to give you a new heart, a new direction, a new motivation. And that's going to change you so that you then want to do the things that I'm asking you to do. You'll want to love God. You'll want to love your neighbor. You'll want to change things. I don't know this morning how in need you feel about a new heart, that he would give you a heart that can be directed by God, a heart that loves him and loves others. And once the heart's sorted out, then they can go to work on society and changing it. Once the heart's sorted, then they can go out and change the world. 
And then God is ready to renew his agreement. And we see in verse 20 that once their heart is sorted, once they're starting to want to reach out and change their nation, that God says, now I can restore my covenant with you, my agreement with you. Now I will come back to being amongst you. I will be your God and you will be my people. I will be faithful to you. So I wonder this year, what sort of year is it for us as a church? What do you think we're called to this year? What is the hope that you have? As I look at this year, I absolutely want this year to be a year that feels different to other years. Don't you? I don't want to live the same year over and over. Actually, I want to see God do new things. I want to see my relationship with him get better and go deeper. I want to see our area changed. And all of this starts with our heart being altered. Our heart being set on fire and drawn to Jesus. I shared this week on Facebook a lie, and I'm very sorry to have done it. But I read a quote from the Queen that turns out she never said it. Which I'm a little bit sad about. Actually, Queen Victoria said it, but it's lovely. And she was asked... Why would you like Jesus to come back in your lifetime? Did you read that? Yeah? And she said, so I could give my crown to him. How wonderful is that? That even the queen, even the monarch would say, do you know what? Met with the maker of the universe, this crown shouldn't be on my head. This should be yours. And I think in a smaller way, that's true for us as well, isn't it? How do we give our crowns to Jesus and say, you be in charge of my life. You lead me. You've got better plans for my life than I do. You guide me. My greatest desire is that this year as a church that we would desire God more and more. I wonder what that looks like for you. Already this last few weeks, I've met with a few people who said, can I have a mentor or a coach, someone who'd meet with me once a month and encourage me in my faith? You might want the same. Can I encourage you, if you do, have a look around, think, who would I like in this church who might meet with me once a month and encourage me? Go and find them. Then nearly all of them will say, I'm a bit scared of that and I don't know what I'm doing. (laughs) In which case, they can then come and find me and I'll kind of show them how that might work. But that's one of the things that might really help. Because how often does someone say to you, how is your faith going? How is your relationship with God? Doesn't happen that often. But maybe that sort of mentoring idea might help. It might be that you want to join one of our life groups, in which case you want to talk to Stuart and Ruth. It might be something else. But all of this is about alignment. How do I bring the whole of my life so that God impacts the whole thing? Perhaps that's already happening for you, but perhaps not yet. God moves where he is wanted. And so we begin by desiring him. And then gradually, as we grow to love him and love others, he gives us a vision for our street, our road, our friends, for wherever our feet are. You might even this week say, where are my feet? Where do I find myself? Because that's the place where God is going to use me. This term, I think we're going to see more people, perhaps even some of you sitting here today saying, do you know, I feel called to do something, but I'm not quite sure what it looks like. Or... God said something to me 15 years ago, but I haven't done it yet. Is this the time to do that? I think we're going to see more and more of that. 
Someone the other day had a word for us as a church that we're a church of hidden treasure. And I think that's probably true. So perhaps in your life, as you seek more after God, you would find him saying, what am I called to do? Perhaps something out there, perhaps something that's part of one of the ministries already as a church. All this begins, though, with wanting God. And one of my favorite bits of the Bible is in Exodus 33. You probably would know it, but it's a bit of a downer as a chapter, but it has a beautiful bit in the middle. Moses has led the people out of Egypt. They've gone through the sea. They've got up to the mountain. God's given Moses the Ten Commandments. He comes down the hill, and they're already worshipping a cow, like a golden calf that they've built and, Moses, uh, and God says to Moses, I can't be with you anymore. I'm done. <laughs> you have gone wrong so many times. Can I send an angel to walk with you instead? Because <laughs> I think that will be safer for us all. And Moses says this wonderful thing. If your presence does not go with us, don't send us forwards. The fascinating thing about that is that God has just said to him, I'm going to lead you into paradise, basically. This beautiful, wonderful land, flowing with milk and honey and all the rest of it and stuff. And Moses says, no, I'd rather stay in the desert if you're not with us. I would love to get to that place when I love God so much and I'm so close to him that I could say, do you know what? I'll turn down paradise because if you're not with me, I'm not up for that. Whatever good things there might be there. But instead, I'd rather be here in the desert with you. It's often not an either or. (laughs) But how much do we want God to be with us? I'm sure for many of us, this is a time of coming back to God and saying, let this year be different. Let this year be the year that I cast my crown to Jesus. Let this year be the year when I see alignment in my whole life with what God is calling me to do. He is faithful and wonderful and trustworthy. But just like he did with Judah, he doesn't compromise. And he says, you know, your whole life needs to be aligned with me. I want to call you to better. Perhaps you're already walking that life, but perhaps not yet. And so I wonder what God would want to say to you just now as we're going to spend a bit of time. So I'm going to be quiet for a bit. I'm going to leave a bit of space. You don't need to say anything during that time. We're just going to be still and invite God to speak to us individually. There's all sorts of things that he might have wanted you to know from what I've just said. It might be something else he wants to say to you this morning. So let's just be still for a bit.